You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series uh, with Jerry Parker, Mort Siebert and I, Niels Kastler-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If this is the first time we meet, our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue of all the past episodes that you may have missed. Now, for those of you who follow the podcast Many of you will know that today's episode is quite special for us at least, as it is episode number 100 of the Systematic Investor Series that Jerry Moritz and I started almost two years ago, not knowing exactly where it would lead us. And it has been a journey where we, like in the investment world, have made some changes along the way. But what has not changed is our passion for providing the best content that we can produce for you each week. And I know I speak for all three of us, as well as Rob Carver, who's also an important part of the series, that we are ever so grateful for all the support and encouragement we have received along the way. I know that I did tweet out this week to hear suggestions about who should join us for this very special episode, but of course, there was really only one person that would fit this occasion, and that is Jerry. So great to have you on this morning, and we're excited to hear what has been going on since your last appearance. So let me start, as I always do, to say good morning to you, Jerry, and good afternoon to you, Moritz. How are things where you are today? Things are well. It's a little early, but the coffee is great, and glad to be here. Thanks for having me for the special episode. Absolutely. How about you, Moritz? Good. My afternoon coffee is great, too. Uh, very happy to have Jerry back on, and hi, guys. Hey guys, it's Seth. Congratulations on episode 100. Thanks to each of you for taking the time that you take every weekend to be away from your, your family and your friends and the stuff you'd rather do besides talk about trading to uh, educate us and share your experience and your wisdom. So congratulations and thank you and here's to 100 more. Cheers. I have to say that I listen to the podcast every week and I get a little irritated when it's not uh, there as soon as I need it, you know, as, as soon as possible. You guys running late sometimes, kind of like, where are these guys? And uh, I've been listening to other podcasts, of course, and uh, realize that I'm not alone, that I don't listen to podcasts when I'm on them because I don't like the sound of my voice. And I don't like what I say, and I should have said it better, but I really do enjoy the podcast with you guys and with Rob and then all the guests. It's been a lot of fun enjoying them from afar. Yeah, well, we appreciate that. And you're absolutely right. It has been uh, a bit of a challenge for us to uh, increase production and still get everything out on Sunday as we normally do for the Systematic Investor Series. So we appreciate the patience from week to week sometimes, but I hopefully will we're we'll, uh, almost there in terms of getting back on track, of course. Just in terms of a quick summary uh, of the week, I mean, for me, at, at least, it wasn't a week where there was a lot of things that kind of stood out in terms of market actions. Of course, sure, we still have the big moves this week. It was net gas and silver. But what I did learn this week is, in fact, that there is something called the World Uncertainty Index. And this is a measure that um, takes policy-related economic uncertainty, and it's constructed as an index from three types of underlying components. You have one component that quantifies newspaper coverage of policy-related economic uncertainty. You have a second component that reflects the number of federal tax code provisions set to expire in future years, and a third component uses disagreement among economic forecasters as a proxy for uncertainty. Of course, don't ask me exactly how they do this. But what was interesting about it is that from a trend-following perspective, I think there seemed to be some reasonable relationship between the level of this uncertainty 
and the level of divergence that you see in market. And since trend following is, of course, a strategy that often thrives when we see lots of divergence in the markets, as opposed to when markets are really stable or convergent, this kind of data actually may be an indication of better times or trends ahead, because it is at an extreme high level in 2020. So I thought that was kind of a different type of information that at least I had not uh, come across. Are you familiar with this, any of you? I read the an article by Mark okay. R, and uh, he mentioned it. I looked it up and Googled it and found the same things that you did. And I wasn't impressed by those three uh, factors, honestly. So uh, another reason for me just to kind of write it off and keep going with the trend. Yeah, I don't think you can trade it per se, but it's just kind of a fun I think another way of visualizing uncertainty, and and to some extent, I guess you could say that we prefer a bit of uncertainty rather than everything is hunky-dory and nothing changes. But uh, what about you, Morris? I saw it. And, uh, you know, guys, when I stepped back and uh, thought about what is really that uncertainty, you know, one thing that crosses my mind is that whenever you open a website that talks about markets or the state of the world, it always goes, we're living in uncertain times. In these uncertain markets, it's always uncertain, 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 right? When is it never uncertain? So mm-hmm. point A. And then point B, I got biased by listening to the Grand Williams podcast with our good friend, Mike Green, who was on our show. And he said, look, guys, it's never been more certain than ever. I mean, <laughs> you'll have food on your plate, you'll have shelter, you're not going to be eaten by a bear when you step out of the house, normally at least, right? Uh, You know, it's like everything is kind of like planned out and mapped out. Plus, when you look at the financial side of things, we now have central banks that give forward guidance for two or three years. They're saying, we're not doing anything. We're staying at zero. There's no uncertainty, no surprise. It's it's just like that. Forget it. (laughs) And I thought, yes, fair, fair point, right? So, and then you go like, yeah, let those journos those journalists just write it's uncertain. They want they want the clickbait. That's fine with me, but it doesn't carry me away. But you do you say that. So let's let's just dig in, in in for two minutes on this. I mean, you say that, and and I know you're quoting Mike saying that it's never been more certain. Well, yet this year we've seen the highest level of the VIX on record, right? So you know, it's never been as uncertain in the financial markets, quote unquote, or at least in equity markets. So. I'm not so sure that I can really use that comment for anything saying, oh, yeah, everything is certain. I, I don't think it is certain. I mean, yeah, okay, maybe we don't get eaten by a bear if we step out, but that's not a certainty that I can use much in investing. And the same with all the, the other points that you quoted him for saying. I actually think that I think that there is a case for the fact that the world is incredibly uncertain at the moment if you look at it. And, and even though it, this is the thing. The fact that markets are calm and it feels safe, to me, that doesn't mean that they are safe. In fact, we've seen this year the fastest uh, 30 plus percent correction ever. That shouldn't happen if everything was certain, right? In my opinion, at least. I don't know. Um, the first thing that I read, number one, newspaper headlines. I'm like, no, forget it. I mean, go back to something else, right? So I would not recommend from a PR standpoint that uh, when people hit your website and uh, this is to be taken seriously, that your first thing you say is, oh, we survey headlines. Okay, cool. All right, let's move on to something more real. Yeah, cool. All right, let's do what we normally do. Let's see how things are. Marks, how was, how was your week? Beginning of August, which by the way, is a month that's sometimes surprised in the world of finance. Yeah, and, and, and so is September and the other 10 months I have. True. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I, I'm getting a little tired talking about my trend-following performance because it's been, you know, it's kind of like an, almost in a hibernation type of thing, um, a slow grind down. It's been a couple of weeks since I've had a P&L on a weekly basis of more than 1%. Like I'm in this like, you know, 25 bips to 50 bips up or down, normally down the last couple of days range and the last couple of weeks. And um, the bond markets, they don't give as much as they used to do in recent weeks. How bad is that, huh? And then, you know, last week it was really just, um, yeah, I've made money in the precious metals. Uh, unsurprisingly, I'm sure you guys did as well. Silver and gold. I mean, silver was, silver did, silver did what silver does. 
when it gets going. It's just incredibly volatile. And then it, you know, it shoots up and it, it crashes down. So this time it shot up and, and uh, I was there for the ride. But then I lost money on Nat Gas, which also shot up. And I had a short position on. And I'm still losing a bit of money on my currency trades where I continue to have a little bit of an overhang still being long the US dollar versus essentially all the other currencies. It's it's not as pronounced as it used to be at the beginning of the year, but it's still there. And that cost me money. I'm really surprised to, uh, I think the euro versus the dollar reached 119. And, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, six, seven weeks ago, the thing was at 110. So quite a quite a big and, and fast move up. So this is this is it, uh, about 4% down for the year. What's been going on with you, Jerry, since obviously it's not just for the last week, but uh, since we last spoke, anything exciting? That's similar performance. Uh, small, you know, uh, the headline grabbing precious metals and uh, dollar trades, but then they're offset by moves against my positions in some of the currencies and uh, sugar and cocoa. So, you know, we're fully diversified, which I appreciate. And uh, at the same time, it makes it hard to make more than, I think we made like 1% last month. And we might be positive slightly for the year, but that's the good news also is that it takes a lot for me to lose money. I have to have a preponderance of the markets go against me. So that's good and bad. You wake up and you're hoping the silver and gold is going to really carried the day for you, but then you got the base metals all rallying against you. Then I get long copper and it had a huge negative day yesterday. So I like the diversification, but I need to see more things moving. And I do think that, uh, although I've said many times that if a CTA trend follower starts talking about their short positions, there's not a lot going on. And so we're starting to see some nice longs and some rallies, even though they are painful, but, uh, I'm getting long, and the commodities, some of them seem to be doing well. My first trade ever in lumber, it's been really fun. So I'm spreading out into some new, newer markets, palm oil, lumber, white maize. Yeah, so I'm getting uh, kind of like Moritz, South Africa, trying South to find Africa. some of these crazy yeah. uncorrelated commodity markets and uh, not, so many, not so much bonds anymore. But uh, it's fun. We have so much fun. I do looking at all these different markets. Yeah, I uh, completely are in uh, in line in terms of year to date uh, numbers that you quoted, Moritz, and for us as well. This week, the the two standout to the downside was net gas and, and copper. On the other hand, we did have enough positive moves in other markets to make it a positive start to August. So that's okay. But again, like you, it's been really small moves, very low risk. We did see a little bit of an uptick in our risk budget, so maybe that is a good sign. But it has been an interesting period in, in many respects, and it's been an interesting year because you can say, even though the three of us might not actually be making money so far this year, obviously the year is still quite long uh, ahead of us, but it has in general not been a bad year for CTAs. But I do think what this year has really shown is how speed of systems play a role and can play a, a significant role in certain periods of time. But I guess also in terms of the simplicity versus complexity of your trend-following model, I do think that there has been some benefits to type classical breakout systems rather than maybe systems with too many bells and whistles potentially not to say that in the long run that that's the case but certainly this year it's been the case as far as i can tell but maybe we'll dive into more of that later i'm i'm really excited to um, get back to what we normally do when the three of us are together and that is to see what jerry has picked up in some of the social side and and topics oh can i just uh, make a comment yeah, on can. that sure in my 60s i just got to get it out or I'll forget it forever. But uh, sure. in portfolio construction, you know, that meant a lot as well. And then mm. uh, hitting the breakouts. I mean, that's, I think I mentioned this before, that that's my takeaway. If I have a filter that delays my, to try to avoid this losing trade, I mean, it's such a bad idea most of the time. We're so concerned with 
a losing trade where we have the stop loss. We have everything we need in our power to make it somewhat irrelevant. But that's the March lesson takeaway for me is hit those breakouts and uh, look at your systems and see if you're not just screwing around with too many nuances. And then I read some other tweets or papers recently and that people were also saying, making the case, not me, although I totally agree, of course, that another way that CTAs, uh, some of, of us have let the clients down was adding things to the trend following program because this helped smooth out the trend following, which we didn't need it to be smoothed out back in March. We needed to do it and hit it and take those trades and take, take advantage of those moves as quickly as possible. So I thought that was pretty interesting too, that uh, we kind of want you guys to, if it's not crisis alpha, at least can you make a little bit of money and those, when the trends emerge for whatever reason, but if you're messing around with the carry trade and pattern recognition and short term and all these other things to smooth out your performance, now you're even less of a trend follower, you're even less than pure than I kind of need you to be. So I thought that was kind of interesting and something that uh, I really have never needed a reason to only focus on trend following, but uh, I thought that was a pretty interesting insight from others. Yeah, what are your thoughts, Mars? Well, I couldn't agree more. Uh, nothing to add really to that. We have to take those trades. Looking back to this year, I did. So we, I think I all had a good March, but then we took the same type of trades in, of course, April and May, and that didn't turn out so, to be so so good. But you have to do it. There is no second guessing about that system. This is, even though it is brutal, you have to be determined and relentless, cold-blooded. Yeah, and I think what, what Jared points out, which I actually think is really important, and that is that that realization, I think because there are fewer and fewer pure trend followers around, there really is. But I do think that, I think investors got a glimpse into the importance of that pure trend return stream even as bumpy as it may be and as comfortable as and, and annoying it can be i do think they got a glimpse of the value of they got a re, they, i wouldn't say a glimpse they got reminded of the value of that so i think that's true and i think that once we do get a chance to have face-to-face conversations again uh, in, in 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 person with investors and and potential investors i do think that's a, a topic that should be discussed more why don't we dive into some of the topics that you've noticed, uh, Jerry, in your uh, daily activity or on Twitter? Because I saw there were some good ones that we haven't talked about for a while. Yeah, I mean, I think just building on that, I, there was a tweet from Wayne that I liked, uh, The Secret to Success, starting each day with vigor and a sense of adventure, with an unquenchable thirst to accomplish, a relentless drive to resolve any challenges and with genuine curiosity and open mind toward new insights. Then someone commented, uh, well, that's an easy to keep, it's easy to keep this attitude when things are up and to the right, more difficult in a drawdown. And then I got to thinking about, well, you know, the good traders that I've seen, these drawdowns have like no effect on them. Like Salem, I, I remember Salem, admiring Salem and thinking, golly, I'd get on the phone with Salem and we would just be shaking our head about this drawdown. And he was just unrelenting, undeterred, cold-blooded. He was just going to take that next trade. And that is the most important thing. You can have these drawdowns. You can be unhappy with it and try to improve your system. But the one thing that you must always do is to take that next trade. And some of these guys who have really successful, and the reason you want to hire a CTA to do the trade. I mean, that is just like the most important thing because in some of them, it's built into them. I wrote cold-blooded determinism in my tweets and then I realized I didn't know what, I wasn't sure what determinism meant and I looked it up and it, I think it has something to do with these people have no alternative but to be this way. And I was like, yes, exactly. It wasn't like he had to force himself, talk himself, coach himself admonish himself. No, he was built this way to do that next trade. And that's why, as you've said so often, Niels, yeah. it's great to understand trend following, build your models, do your backtesting, but can you do it? Do you need to hire someone to actually be strong enough to do these things when, it, when the going gets tough? And this is 
what I think two weeks ago we took away also from um, our interview with Mark Rysusimski, the theoretical experience and the practical experience in trend following. Like in theory, you will be doing these trades. In theory, you look at the back test and you say, oh yeah, easy peasy, 16% drawdown, 30% fall, I will take that trade. Well, in reality, this may look a little different. So you have to, and I think this is, this is a matter of experience. You probably will have to, you know, you need to be there, you know, in these drawdowns every once in a while and do the trades and work your way out of the drawdown to get that stamina and just, you know, become so determined and, and so relentless about these things. There's another person that I know, Bill Dreis, he's, he's the same way, you know, he trades at 30 vol. So for him, you know, the drawdowns can easily be 50%. I mean, he has like, you know, minus 16% month, stuff like that. Then another one, but then, you know, I was on the phone with him, a phone with him and um, it's kind of like, yeah, here are the trades, those are the orders, do them as simple as that. And then you do the trades. So let me add to that. There's a couple of really interesting things that I think of when I hear that. One is just when you talk about personalities, right? I mean, and how some people are just kind of built for it. I mean, this is exactly how also the founder of our firm, Bill Don. I mean, it's exactly the same characteristic that that he showed when when he was uh, active in the office. I mean, you couldn't tell whether he, we were up 5% or down 10% or whatever. It's just the same thing. And then, of course, on top of that, again, referring back to our conversation two weeks ago with Mark, where we asked him, what's the secret to John Henry? And, and he said, well, the secret is really that he's never met anyone who was so laser-focused on what he was doing. So again, something that you could say is very close to what you brought up, Jerry. But then I think of you, Jerry, and I think of the whole turtle experiment. And I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to maybe ask you today how long it took for you to essentially buy into that because you didn't necessarily were, you know, you weren't necessarily born like that, so to speak. And it is the whole thing about nurture versus nature, but you had the best mentor in the world to demonstrate how to deal with this. So how do you think back on that time? Yeah, I mean, I thank you for that. I remember um, leaving that the turtle training class and probably one of the biggest takeaways was do the, do the next trade. You've got to do these trades. And so after about a week of trading in January 1984, Rich called all of us on the telephone. We're all in the same office. So you could hear the phone ringing around the room. And I thought it was my turn. And he said, well, how many trades did you do today, this week? And I said, I did about 10. And he said, well, how many do you think you should have done? I said, probably like 30. And he was like, yeah, just do the trades. You know, don't worry about it. That's why I've always been so intense on extolling the virtues of entries, you know. I agree. I understand what people mean when they when they say entry, uh, exits are very important or more important. But entries, you know, you've got to do that entry. So I pretty much spent the rest of the year having a really difficult time. My attitude was poor. My performance was poor. And I reached December probably down, I don't know, 20%. And I think it was a good year for most of the other turtles. And I just was in a bad spot mentally. And um, I just said to myself, I can picture myself in front of my elevator with my friends in my apartment going, okay, I'm just going to go for it. You know, I'm just going to go for it. Follow the rules. Yeah. What were you doing for 11 months? And so I just started doing all of these trades without regard to my cautious nature. And I made 20% in the month and finished the year positive. And uh, I got a reprieve, basically. I probably should not have. They took pity on me and, get, and let me stay around, even though I tremendously underperformed. I think I made 1% and other people made 100 to 200%. I had a poor attitude and, and was not able to even follow the system. I, intellectually, oh, yeah, oh, God, got to follow that system. Oh, I was all over it intellectually. And knowing the right things and being able to tell other people how you're supposed to do it. But actually doing it, I had failed, and they gave me a second chance because of their generosity. And so the whole Jerry Parker, Chesapeake may never have occurred if I had, a, uh, had a, more of a normal 
set of bosses who would have treated me the way I should have been treated because honestly, I never saw Rich get very irritated or very uptight in all of those years unless it was someone sort of making an excuse of why they couldn't do the trades that they were supposed to do. So a little bit more of the story there. Yeah, which is always great, of course. I want to add one thing to to this topic because I think it's 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 quite interesting. I was looking up things we could talk about today since it's been a while that you were here, Jerry, and uh, I just came across a list of 22 behavioral knockets, as they're call, called, to optimize your outcome. And this is a list by one of my previous guests on the podcast, Dr. Daniel Crosby, who I have tremendous respect from and for and his books are are really great but what i noticed one thing so there's these 22 different things you should do right but here listen just to because it's really interesting i think in this context he goes through the list and then he gets to uh, one of the points and that is systematization and he says of those 22 things you can do he says if i could use just one tool from this behavioral toolkit this would be my choice We systematically overestimate our willpower and discipline, both of which are rendered unnecessary in the face of automation. Automation takes the human tendency to be lazy and status quo prone and makes it work to our advantage. And that's it. Follow the rules. I think another thing I've been very opinionated about is I think there is some objective truths that people should not approach trading as a, I know this is kind of, uh, you, you don't agree with me on this, Niels, but I, it's not that I disagree, it's just that uh, I wouldn't approach it this way. I definitely think there's some truth to, to this idea, but I kind of like would not uh, want to get myself into a situation where I absorb this idea too much, and that would be there's many different ways. There's many different ways to be successful. I mean, I, I think there are many different, there are, and that's been demonstrated, but there is this sort of unique, perfect way, which none of us know, but we should all sort of strive for. And so if volatility targeting is a good idea, it either is or it isn't, in my opinion. It's not, well, you you can do it, and I won't do it, and it doesn't really matter. No, I think it does matter, and I could be wrong. It could be phenomenal. But I think that it's fine to sort of try to create your system and with this idea of, I just want to make it better. There is somewhere an unattainable, perfect way of trading. And I just want to find that and not just sit back and say, well, you know, I'm okay because there's many different ways. However, my exception to that is leverage and trading size and uh, 50% drawdowns and 16% months. And I think that over time, the way that I was able to overcome some of my inability to be, maintain discipline and do the trades was to realize that I needed to lower my leverage and lower my risk in order for me. And I think that is a choice. It's a fine choice. If uh, some people want to have huge leverage and some people want to have uh, 1% months or 2% months max, I think that's good too. Whatever it sort of takes for your personality to be able to do those trades and follow that system and those rules, I'm all for. And that I think is, unlike trading rules, is more okay if you uh, look at it that particular way. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to blame my uh, inability to follow the rules on uh, being over leveraged. And with the turtles, we were making 200% a year. So it took me a while. Uh, to put those trades on. Of course, today is a special day with uh, Jerry being back. And there's one person that holds my back when I speak about vault targeting. Um, So I'm, I'm not alone here. But one thing I did over the past two weeks is I've asked a couple of people why do you do vault targeting? Why do you do it? And to be honest, with the exception of one person, I didn't get a real answer. It's kind of like, 
Isn't that what you do? Isn't this what, you know, every systematic trading model these days has where you have a volatility scanning? So I have the feeling that some people, they just apply it and they don't know why they do it. It's just because it's there. They've read about it. They've read about it in a paper and it exists and they've picked something up, I don't know, from whoever does it. And and they think it's good. So they now blindly apply it. And again, like to all those people, I, I would love to hear it. I'm like, Jerry, I could be wrong and that's fine. But give me a real good answer and your reason and your statement as to why you do it. I remember when, you know, working for a bank and structured products and derivatives. Yeah, we introduced vault targeting for one reason and one reason only. It is to control the volatility profile of an underlying instrument that we had created in order for that instrument to be linked to the structured product slash note to be sold to a retail client for a high fee. So that we as traders didn't have difficulty hedging the Vega because the Vega is now essentially zero because it does have a predefined volatility. So it was an invention to facilitate structured product sales. At least, you know, this is the origin that I have with that. And then it morphed into all sorts of systematic indices and QIS bank strategy indices and apparently also into our CTA world where, you know, as Jerry can probably attest to, that stuff didn't exist in the 80s. Now it's there. And people take it for granted it's there, so use it. But when you ask them, and I, 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 I'm, you know, if, if you could do that, I'd, I'd love to hear your feedback. Ask people why they do it and give me a call when you get a good answer. Well, I, um, you know, I'm sorry we've gotten into this subject again, Niels, but... Uh, <laughs> no, it's fine. I, I mean, how could we not get into this subject? I'm just thinking... You can't blame me for this one. But I think that uh, I loved... No, I lo it's me. I, uh, I love... And I'm going to... And I'm going to I really appreciate the two quads in the bar and then your t uh, Moritz's, the other Moritz, Moritz number two, his uh, attempt to uh, write these they're really interesting and funny. And I think at another time I'll weigh in on all of this. But I really enjoyed Moritz's tweet this week about that fall targeting. It was kind of funny. This is the way I took it. It's kind of like, you know, I think that I figured out that it's in my best interest that you people keep fall targeting at the same time I don't fall target. I'm like, yeah, exactly. And I got to thinking, you know, I think what gets lost in my criticism of this is I really don't care. And I'm like, Moritz, I'm like, go right ahead. I'm happy. I feel so superior to you people who fall target. Then why are you complaining about it? <clears throat> I complain and I have done it many times. It just gets lost in all the noise. And I complain because in my opinion, singularly, there's one reason I don't like it. It's irresponsible trading. It's what TransTrend is writing about. We owe it to the markets to be responsible. And I think the vol targeting has been guilty of indiscriminate selling or buying and causing chaos in the markets by the way that they have structured it that they must target this fall real time, irrespective of liquidity. And if that's not the case, then I apologize. But I do think that it could be the case, and it does seeming to be the case. So as for the integrity of the markets, just please stop <laughs> or take an hour to do the trade or piece it in with your TWAP or VWAP like I do in uh, the thin markets. But at 4 o'clock in the morning, when the S&P is 10 by 10, and you've got 5,000 to sell, your AUM uh, has nothing to do. You, the amount of stocks you have on and your AUM relative to the stock market is irrelevant. The S&P is 10 by 10, and you've got thousands to sell. What do you think is going to happen? Fantastic point. The one thing I just need to, and then it's case closed, sorry, Niels, but fantastic point by Jerry is in one way, those type of trades, they're in the same way price insensitive as all these ETF flows. That's exactly. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter what price is. You know, it, it has produced, there has been a historical volatility that you calculate on a certain day. And only because of that, you're now forced to trade in the market, right? And reduce, scale your position to a certain fall, regardless of what the price is. And, and I'm not, I, I don't get it. To, to me, this is just, yeah, well, anyway. Marco from uh, 
J.P. Morgan came up with indiscriminate selling. And then the, the crazy thing is, is that uh, when you enter a trend-following trade, there is no reason to do it quicker or later. It's your discretion. But they've promised people that we are going to target this volatility. So they've got a trade to do. They've got themselves in a corner. There is no waiting a day or two. We have to do it now. And they throw it in there. And when they get the fill back, they've moved the market so much that they've created another vol targeting trade. <laughs> <laughs> the gift that keeps on it's giving. A loop. <laughs> it's it's probably it's a conspiracy. It's invented by <laughs> right. a brokerage firm, I'm sure. Exactly. Um, no, I mean, first of all, of course, I'm not on the other side of this argument. I don't think necessarily vol targeting is a good idea either. But like you guys, I mean, I haven't seen any hard evidence one way or the other. It doesn't really matter. It's not what we do either. But I do think that Moritz is onto something because if I think about the industry today, by the way, it's like the official number is like 278 billion is in the CTA industry. Take out Bridgewater, then you're down to 150 billion or something like that. This is not a big industry. And a lot of the firms, three of us know, and I don't know many firms that comes out saying we do vol targeting. So I don't even know how many does it. But where I do think that there is more and more of this indiscriminate selling or buying coming, that's exactly what Mark points out and what Mike Green has pointed out. So much of the flows today are from passive investments and they don't care about price discovery. They just have orders to do. And I don't know what the mechanism is. I don't know what the volume is, but I would guess that they play probably a bigger part. Maybe in some smaller markets, the CT industry or others using the same techniques, which is, of course, possible, could make or may have an influence. Uh, but I think in, once you get into the financial side, currencies, bonds, uh, equities, of course, I think that these mutual fund companies and ETF companies probably pay, play a bigger role. And it's not really vault targeting they're doing. They're just uh, implementing flows indiscriminately. Good point. So anyways, what uh, what are the good things uh, that we're not meant to talk about you have on your list, Jerry? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I don't know if, if this is a good topic, but I think it's sort of interesting. I really love this topic in it. Uh, my friend on uh, Twitter, Richard, he has started talking about this the other day, and that is why do trend followers have this, uh, well, he says, have the same expectation of outcome across every liquid market. I would say that why do trend followers say that all the trades have the same expectation? I don't know if liquid market needs to be in that sentence, and I think that's a fascinating topic because I think when we talk about diversification, whether it's 50 or 100 or 150 markets, we're essentially, I think, are relying upon this idea that uh, from an outsider's point of view, we're sort of building this portfolio for the uh, amount of diversification we think that it needs, long and short, but then we're applying these systems and implicitly to others and explicitly to ourselves, we're saying, you know, we think all of these trades have uh, the same expectation and the same profit uh, potential. And why do we say that? And I thought that uh, he said it was because we cannot predict when outliers occur. And of course, I was like, I don't think I agree with that. But I think it has to do with the fact that um, we decide to trade all of these markets the same, with the same rules, and the longs and the shorts as well, in order to get the sufficient sample size of trades so we can feel like the systems are robust and we should rely upon those trades. And it's only the search for sample size that we must say to ourselves, we're going to trade them all the same way. And then we're going to look at the back test and say, the average trade for corn and for Swiss franc is whatever the average trade is for the group because we consider them to be the same. We treat them the same. These are markets that human beings are in that are influenced primarily by the feelings and the emotions of humans. And in order for us to go forward, we must make this assumption that they're all kind of the same. We want to put our hand over the name of the market on the chart and treat it as if 
it's all the same data. And, and we have to treat the longs and the shorts with the same rules as well. What do you think? I, I get confused on this, Moritz. I need your help. What do you think? I look at that in the same way from, like, I look at sample size. When I have a sample size of thousands and thousands of trades, which is, you know, what I'm striving to achieve in order to um, get a, a robust data set and, and, you know, come to a conclusion that what I'm looking at is robust and statistically, hopefully reliable. You can never be 100% certain, by the way, it takes, you know, I'd love to have so much more data, but anyhow, with, with the data that I have, and with the sample size that I have, I kind of like neutralize it. I, I don't see the markets anymore. It's kind of like those tickers, those inputs, they're kind of like meaningless at that point. If you treat everything in the same way, then it's just an instrument, instrument A, B, C, D, E, you know, all the way. And therefore they're kind of like, they're just these hidden inputs and they can all produce the same thing at any given point in time. And therefore, when you step back and you look at that sample size from that perspective, it's like you say, you must, you must actually come to the conclusion that every trade will have the system expectation of the trade, the average expectation of that system. And I think another thing that we are able to do is include the outliers, which make all the money, because we're using the same rules. Yes that we do on the trades on the vast majority that don't really make or lose very much. And so we, in our fishing net, we capture those outliers and we don't have to say, although we could be criticized and said, well, you can't include those outliers. They're so much different. We would say, well, they're all different. The longs look different than the shorts, but in order to capture those outliers, all we need to do for it to be legitimate and the sample size to be legitimate and sufficient is to treat those outliers with the same rules. So this is what we're saying. And as I was walking through this in my head this morning, I just kept saying, this is the key word in all of this is saying. This is what we believe, this is what we say. This is us. I think it's true. I believe it to be true. And then I thought, well, someone could easily point out, well, I've seen the back test, hundreds of back tests, great back test, your back test. They don't all make the same amount of money. And so what is our response? Well, our response is they will. <laughs> They're converging into the future, into the next 100 years. They will all get closer and closer actually to having the performance that our short-term 20, 30, 40-year backtest, the insufficient amount of time that we're actually looking at. They will all start to converge. Well, the shorts as well. Oh, wow. Now you're really getting, you really give me the business here. The shorts? Yes. <laughs> it's been getting a little incredulous here. I'm really having a hard time arguing with myself on this because I'm thinking there's no way these shorts are going to start having the similar performance. I think this is what we believe. We must believe this in order to have a legitimate yeah. uh, reason to think these systems are robust. And and not forget, I mean, I'd, I'd love it if they all converged, like you say, to the same performance over longer periods of time, it would finally get my long wheat position back in line with all the other markets. I mean, that's been kind of like a laggard. And I don't want to discount that the short side can have a comeback. I mean, why not? I mean, remember that the last 30 years, we've been in this environment of ever lower interest rates, rising equity markets. Yes, there have been ups and downs, right? But the, the bigger picture has been a picture of expansion, financial largesse by central banks, you know, over time at least, uh, rising bond markets and all that type of stuff. So yes, we were long the bonds, we were long the equities, that's where we made the money, right? There hasn't been any major inflation, so the commodities didn't work as well on the long side, some of them. But what if all that turns at some point? Maybe there is a turning point ahead of us, right? And bond yields are rising and bonds are falling and equities are dropping and because of inflation coming, commodities are rising. So your shorts could be doing quite well. And it's dangerous to drop them. It's dangerous to give them a lower weight, I think, than your longs because it's kind of like you're, you're giving up at maybe probably at your weakest point, right? And, and, and now that you've reduced the weights of your shorts and you don't like your shorts anymore and you're reducing some of the markets altogether from trading shorts, such as Prince's equities, this is when you need them. So I think you have to be steadfast and just carry on with them and believe in, believe in, like you say, what we're saying is that over time, they should come up 
with the average system performance. And so here we are, this group of traders, money managers, who put all of this emphasis on the back test, and yet we walk away being very skeptical that this back test is an accurate representation of what we've seen in the back test. We take away and we say, well, things are going to be different in the past. Things are going to converge. The yen and crude are not going to be our best performers of all time necessarily. They're not going to have these outlier performances above all the other markets. And the shorts are going to get better. Uh, so we're like, yes, we like the back test, but we don't like it that much. So I don't know if it's different to what you said. The way I think about why these things are, first of all, I think from memory that not that long ago, I went back and I looked at all the markets we trade. I went back and looked at PL attributions. And once you divide it out by a market over a decent period of time, for sure, you can't do it over five or 10 years. You need to go further back. Performance by market, they weren't that different. The reason why we think we make more money in fixed income is really just because we have a lot more fixed income markets in the portfolio than we have metals or, or, or whatever it may be. But if you really drill it down on a market by market basis on average, I don't think our actual performance has been hugely different over a long enough period. So that's the first thing I would say. So why why is that? So I think a lot of it has to do, and I think this is what you were saying, Moritz, is just the fact that we don't optimize our models for specific markets. We just treat the all markets the same. And I don't know if there's a theoretical argument or mathematical argument you can argue to say, well, that means that in the long run, they will probably give you more or less the same thing. I don't know about that because I am actually puzzled also by the fact that it's the longs that makes the money and not the shorts. And maybe it will change in the future. Maybe it will never change, but it'll still be, as we say, that on a market-by-market -market basis, they will look pretty similar. But when I think about it just in a super, super simple way, and I think about each market, and, and as, you, as you pointed out, you know, we tend to make the money on these outlier moves. And if you look at the portfolio of markets we trade, I think of them as all having that ability to come up with one big surprise move we just haven't seen for five or ten years, but suddenly it's there. And if we're there, as we talked about earlier, doing the entries and getting in, we will capture it. And so, therefore, over a 30 or 40-year period of time, you, we will probably have surprises and big moves in probably all the markets we trade at different times. And so I think just from a very simplistic point of view, I think there's a good argument that, that markets will give us the same return, more or less, over a long enough period, uh, as long as we treat them uh, the same. Well said. I like that. I think another thing I was thinking just a second ago is that um, I think it's probably correct or okay to consider the bond rallies as shorts, yeah, short the interest rates. So I think uh, that that's a topic for another discussion. Mm -hmm. But uh, that would help our uh, stat, our short trade stats. <laughs> it, it 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 will it will. It's we'll, really, we'll do the same with the currencies, right? I mean, my my long my long dollar positions have worked so well, well because I've been short the euro. So right. short euro position has been. The other thing I find interesting, and I'm I'm sure that that when people think about trend following, they'll think the last five years, you guys have killed it in equities. And all I can say is no, equities killed it on us because we've not been able to make money in equities because of those sharp V-shaped moves that it's had. It's been trending well, but it has these really uncomfortable periods with like 18, 24 months in between. So when I look at performance attributions, no, it's not equities. And actually, this is interesting. It's something that I think Moritz and I talked about a little while ago. And that is when you look at performance by sector, actually one of the most, if not the most consistent sector, certainly during periods of crises where we tend to make most of our money anyways, quote unquote crises, it's commodities. It's not equities. We don't make money in, from, in crisis periods from equities. In fact, we lose money because we're always long at the wrong point in time. We may make money in bonds if we're on the right side of the trade at the time when the crisis occur. And sure, we have done this year, but that's not always a given. But commodities, for some reason, which I can't explain today, 
for some reason, that seems to be the most consistent sector. And the three of us, of course, we completely agree that commodities are so important, yet we see a lot of the large managers in our space reduce their exposure because of size, right? And and that's something I think we all agree on, that that's just not something you should do. And it goes back to the philosophy of, we don't know where the next big trend is going to be, so we need to treat everything equal. So why shouldn't we treat commodities equal? I remember... The explanation that Rich gave me one time was, I haven't tested this, but it's you can prove to yourself that optimizing doesn't work by just like test 20 years, the first 20 years of corn, optimize those parameters, and then see if the next 20 years of corn, if that's the best parameters for corn. And his response was, no, the best for the next 20 years is going to be the entire what worked with best for the entire portfolio. Ah, that is pretty compelling reason to accept the fact that your best guess for the future is whatever works well for the whole group. Mm. Mm. Some of yeah. these problems we think that uh, there usually is a math solution to get us going in the right direction. I mean, I think there's a reason why I was doing some work on some kind of introduction to trend following for our purposes uh, as, as a firm and i was looking back uh, uh, you know quite a far away in terms of finding sources of inspiration and you do find and and we know that to be true because it's been written about but you do find references to these trend following terms going back more than 100 years and i think that is important i think that that shows you that even you know david ricardo in 1883 realized that you know if you let your winners run and you cut your losses short well you're probably going to make money more more often than not i mean so it's not rocket science per se it's really tried and tested concepts that we are applying and the trick is as we started talking about uh, in this episode to put yourself in a position where you can actually follow those rules as difficult as they may be from time to time to to be in. Cool stuff, Jerry. Another topic or two uh, before we wrap up this anniversary episode of our Systematic Investor Series? Yeah, there's one more tweet I'd like to talk about, and I think it's unfortunately building on the same idea. I watched a podcast, Corey's Flirting with Models, with Cliff Asnes. Of course, I enjoyed mm -hmm. that. And um, I figured out that I can hold my iPhone up to the computer with, and start composing an email with Siri, and it will do a fairly decent transcript of what Cliff is saying. So cool. I, was, I was able to uh, write this quote in a tweet uh, from Cliff, and he says, it's all going to be okay if you do reasonable things in investing and you stick with them. I am biased not to change our minds easily. The only way to lose if you're right long-term is to try to time and jump around. You've introduced the possibility that it won't work for you. And my favorite part of that is you've introduced the possibility it won't work for you. You've done this. Oh, my gosh. Of all the things as a trader we don't want to do is sabotage ourselves. And I think what I, my takeaway is, don't do that. You're hurting yourself. You cannot improve upon this system with your discretion. And by all means, go down with the ship, trade small, cut back. Yes, sure. But don't introduce the possibility that you're going to not succeed. I think that's a pretty sobering thing to remember. It, it kind of reminds me of sometimes when people... Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it's out there in public, but there's certain places you can find our track record back from 1974. And I'm sure it'll be exactly the same if they were looking at your track record, Jerry, but they see this track record and clearly it's, it shows you that over that long period of time, investors have been incredibly well rewarded by investing in this strategy, right? Yet people will come to us and say, okay, so do you think trend following still works? And I'm kind of a little bit baffled, right? Because here in front of them, you have all this evidence that this type of strategy has worked throughout many, many, many different economic environments and surprises and wars and what have you. Yet people have this innate need for questioning, will this continue to work? And I think that's just part of our human 
human biases. Yeah, we've said this so many times. It's it's too rough and too volatile and too unsteady for most people to really become happy with. I guess this is part of the alpha and the edge that we can harvest is its roughness. And um, I agree with what Cliff has said. I mean, he's getting a lot of pressure on the value side of AQR's business because the value trade just hasn't performed. Ever since the global financial crisis, the thing that has performed is growth and tax stocks, but not the value stocks, right? But here he is, he, he, gets, he gets beaten and he goes, well, no, we, what, he, what he essentially says is we, we believe as AQR, he probably doesn't say we know, we believe this is a good strategy and this is what we should be doing. It, it does work, it's in the data, right? So the mistake that we can now make is to change the system and our belief in response to poor performance over the past two, three, four, five years or whatever they're looking at. Only because it hasn't worked over that period of time that we're now getting uh, critiqued with. We're now making a change. And this is then what in the last sentence says, and then it stops working for you, but only for you because you have made that change. It doesn't stop working for the people that just, you know, continue unchanged with this. And maybe they will go down with the ship because something's wrong with the thing. I don't know. But if you've fiddle around with it and you you make all these adaptions then it introduces a form of risk into your system and that may fail yeah i mean every time you make a change to your model you have the risk of getting it wrong that's for sure yep practical experience right if you're starting out this business maybe you're tempted to make a lot of changes and add a lot of complexity and do this and do this a little better and add another system and another overlay but i guess it it takes some time and you probably need a couple of scars uh, operating in drawdowns and all of that to not do that. And I think well, just to pick up on your point there, Niels, is that yeah. it's the reason you keep taking the long wheat trade. You've paid. How many times have you paid that wheat tax? And so you're going to give up on that trade or that, that system, that rule at the exact wrong time. And so you don't want to do that. And likewise, in changing systems, you're now changing to something that the back test has now said, oh, this is better. Yeah, but you paid the tax on that old system <laughs> and it may get better. I, I've told the story that we changed our systems in 2006 and we kept changing that. We, we hadn't implemented them yet. And I went in there to the research team and I'm like, when are we going to implement these new systems? And they said, we're, we're getting close, we're getting close. Oh, it was 2000. 13, because we had tremendously underperformed in 12. We identified some of the problems with our 12 performance. And then before I left the room, they would say, you know, the old systems are doing much better this year than the new systems. (laughs) You know, so you've got to be careful with your changes. Evolving, changing, adapting. These are cliches that CTA marketing departments and some of the traders and founders throw around a lot. We adapt, we evolve, the markets change. Ooh, be careful with changes. Interestingly enough, just again, throwing back to that interview we did with Mark a couple of weeks ago, and where he also brought up and said, we all know that John Henry, of course, was incredibly successful in his CTA business, as he has been in baseball and, and, and European football. But but what he did also reveal was that they rarely made any changes, if any, to, to the systems. And, and we kind of see the same. And by the way, Jerry, I thought instead of the weed example, I thought you were saying the short JGB tax that we've all been paying for uh, a few decades. And now we're short again. Yes. So we'll see if that comes back, you know, a hundredfold anytime soon. But of course, I guess with investors looking at what we do and looking for some kind of alpha, as you know, the saying, I mean, the problem with alpha is that it has too little beta. And, and that is exactly what happens, right? From time to time, we can't keep up with a buy and hold long U.S. equities, right? So people get bored. I mean, I, I know of two CTAs, I'm not going to mention their name, but they both have more than 20 years of life track record, one of them more than 25 or 27 years. And I, I don't know 100% for sure, but I'm, I'm you know speaking to them, I'm very certain that they probably haven't made a single change to their system. They've added a couple of markets as they became available, but they're trading that same thing. And guess what? They've made new all-time highs, system all-time highs in March of this year. They're now in a drawdown, as are we, but they've made new all-time highs in March. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a very good point. I think that um, 
I remember knowing that about John Henry and sort of being more raised in this industry to say that we're not here to protect our track record and the integrity of the track record. If we start switching, how good is the track record? I think that's the Henry approach. But I think I was sort of under the impression that the track record is our ability to navigate the markets, navigate life, to, I'm not saying never evolve, never change, never learn, never get better, but there was just two different approaches. And then another thing I'd have to say is, in my opinion, I don't think I'm alone in this, is that I'll be quite specific and bold at the risk of being incorrect, is that I believe that there was this moment in the late 90s where people started to realize that the shorter term trading that they were doing, that JWH did, had stopped working. And that one needed to look at the 100-day low and greater versus the 20-day low. And I think that's the last material change that we made. So I think besides going to the Red Sox and besides doing soccer, maybe that's the reason that he said, well, not going to do it and we're out of here. And I think it's perfectly fine to believe that the 20-day shorter-term trend will come back, I suppose. But I think that that is my recollection of, of uh, my history. Interesting stuff. Good to walk down memory lane again. Any other topics we want to bring up today? Well, why don't you think about it for two minutes, and I will just quickly run through performance, which is pretty good for uh, the CT industry. The BTOP 50 index is already up more than 1% for August, up 1.3% for the year. The SockGen CT index up three quarters of a percent, up about 57 basis points for the year. The trend index up 1% for the month of August, up 3.23 for the year. Short-term traders index up about 42 bips in August, up 4% for the year. Short-term still doing a little bit better, but certainly trend seems to be catching up at least for now. What else should we um, bring up, if anything, uh, today on this 100th episode of our little series? Anything that stands out? Anything you've learned from doing all these episodes, any of you? I usually feel better when I feel like that we've paid attention to our listeners. And I think some of them are on Twitter and we hear from them through the questions. Uh, we get a lot of positive feedback and um, I like to sort of focus on the things that they are interested in and hopefully we've done that today. And uh, I think another thing they really appreciate is the encouragement that you guys give them on a weekly basis. And I think uh, my most appreciated tweets are those where I'm encouraging people to stay, stay the course. And I think that's the biggest thing that you two have continued to do and Rob as well. I really enjoy listening to Rob. Yeah. Anything that stands out for you, Moritz, also having been here? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm not sure, you know, I need to think about what I have learned. I'm sure there's a couple of things that I have learned doing that podcast and, you know, speaking to you, but like Jerry, I appreciate it a lot that we get tremendous positive feedback, not all the time, but you know, most of the time, Real good positive feedback on on our weekly show and the guests that we bring on. And that I get the feeling and have the impression that it helps people. It helps people to become better traders or it helps them to understand what it is that we're doing in a better way and to frame it differently. And if that's it, that's good enough for me. Yeah, and I also think, I mean, I think, and I, I'm pretty sure we've touched on this through our conversations to some extent, even though we've done it all for, for many decades, I still think it's useful and helpful. I mean, I'm thrilled that it helps a lot of people out there to stay the course and stay disciplined and all of that. I think it helps me as well to have these conversations, even though we are very strong believers in what we do. It's never pleasant, I think, going through a rough time. And there has been quite a few of them along the way. And there has been probably even more in the last four or five years where it has been a bit of a struggle for the industry. So I think as well, for me, it's it's really um, useful to just be able to have these conversations. And as you say, actually also to see where people, I wouldn't say are struggling, but what their main interests or, or concerns are from the questions we get. So 
keep them coming and and send them to info at toptradersunplugged.com because we really do love to dig into these and uh, we'll try to get Jerry on, on on a little bit more frequent basis. We'll try and twist his arm, I'm sure, because it is always fantastic to do these conversations. I think with that, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed producing it. So from Jerry, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.